Welcome to the Brother of Peter podcast. This is where we discuss the scripture and the insights that we can draw from it. Today, we have a wonderful friend of mine. His name is Jonah Saller. Jonah Saller and I met, funny enough, through TikTok during the pandemic. This was about a year and a half ago. We were both studying the scripture. We were both just enamored by the beauty of it and specifically eschatology. But through that, the Lord has really intertwined our paths and our heart for the topic of discussion today, which is Christian unity. Now, Jonah is an Anglican. I am a Baptist. But the beauty of this is that we are sharing in the same baptism of the Holy Spirit. We are sharing in the same death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And we want to discuss this. Uh, and there's a lot, a lot of questions surrounding denominations. There's a lot of questions surrounding just the culture of Christianity, especially from non-believers. Well, how can you be uh, united if there's so many different denominations and so many differences and all of these things? So I want to touch on this. But first, I want to introduce my brother, Jonah Saller. Jonah, if you could just give us an introduction to who you are and um, just your story and how you have come upon and just had a heart to develop uh, Christian unity um, in your ministry and in your walk with the Lord. Yeah. Well, thank you, Andrew, for having me on the podcast. I thrilled to be here with you. Um, I have just such a love for your heart, for the Lord and for truth. And it's been a joy to mature and grow alongside you in our, in our journey. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I really got my start on TikTok. Like you said, I was making just 60 second videos, uh, with really just exegeting different parts of scripture and kind of sharing it. And through that, the Lord really instilled and solidified within me a, a deep desire for ministry. Um, and so through that, I began to expand my, my ministry to include podcasts and YouTube videos and, uh, blogging on a website. Um, and just increasingly felt called to the ministry. So I'm actually in the process of getting ready to move across the country to go to Arizona to join an Anglican church and Lord willing pursue uh, holy orders within the Anglican communion of, of the Anglican church of North America. And so that's, that's where I'm at. But my journey in, into Christian unity really began just by studying the scriptures. Um, I, I think that the more that we study scriptures, the more that we see that the ultimate purpose for the church to reflect Christ to the world comes through its unity. Um, we are the body of Christ and the body of Christ cannot and should not be divided. Um, and I think um, John 17, Jesus's high priestly prayer was really the passage that when I read it, it struck me to the core of my being in terms of just the significance of the fact that our Lord, our savior, the one whom we worship and through whom we have life, is praying for us and praying for our unity. And I, I just, I was, I was burdened with the fact that I feel that the church does not take that as seriously as we should. And um, growing up into um, more of a reformed uh, Christianity before transitioning to Anglicanism, I was, I was struck within reformed uh, Christianity, the, the internal unity that you found between reformed churches, but then a lack of unity with the outside churches and transitioning from more of a reformed view to Anglicanism. 
it did kind of feel like a schism to a certain extent with some people where there was a, well, you're not, you're not of us anymore. And I was, I was very burdened by this. Like we, we believe in the same gospel. We believe in the same Jesus. Like why, why is there this attitude that if you don't confess this particular creed or confession, you are somehow outside the bounds. And so I was just struck with seeing how Christianity rather than a united oneness turned into a sort of tribalism um, in many aspects. And uh, I would like to just read John 17, just to solidify just the, the power of Christ's words. But he starts in verse 20 of John 17 by, by saying, I do not ask only for these, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And just pausing there, he's speaking about us, right? He's not just praying for the disciples, but the ones who will believe through the words of the disciples, which is us that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. And the thing that I noticed from that, the first time I read it, was that Jesus multiple times, he, he brings out that the oneness that he expects of the church is the same oneness that he has with the Father. <laughs> and Jesus and the Father are both God, <laughs> equally <laughs> in, in complete essence with one another. They are both God. Yeah. So that's, that's some very complete oneness. And not only does he ask that, but he wants us to be not just one, but perfectly one. <laughs> perfectly one. And so this is a, a oneness that is, that is a, that Jesus attributes to the same unity that is found within the very Godhead. Um, and then he goes on to say that, that this oneness is how the world will look in to know that he is who he says he is, that he is of God, that he is the Messiah. And so really this passage just brought, brought me to an understanding of the church and of the unity that we should be seeking for. Um, and really prompted within me this desire to make this the highest priority of any Christian ministry, because our evangelism is not going to be effective in the world if the world looks in and says, okay, you want me to become a Christian, but which, which Christian? You guys or these guys? And if there's no internal unity... You know, and I, I get frustrated because sometimes it seems as though Protestants are very comfortable with talking about the invisible church. Now, don't get me wrong. There is such a thing as the invisible church, right? But we cannot neglect the fact that the way scriptures speak of the church, they speak of the church as a tangible, physical, visible reality. And so if we ignore that and settle for this quote unquote invisible church, as though, as though visible unity doesn't matter, I think we really undermine the words of Christ and undermine our testimony to the world. So. Dude, that's so good. And I love how you brought it into just the triune nature of God, the unity of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and how we are united to the Son, to Jesus. And Peter says in his epistle that we are partakers of the divine nature, not that we are going to become gods, nor that is not what Peter is saying. But we are sharing in Christ, in his benefits, in the blessings uh, of sonship um, because of the sacrifice. And that is where we can dwell and abide in his love. 
Um, I love what you said that the world will know that we are Christ's, that we are his disciples by our unity. And Jesus says elsewhere that it's by how we love each other in the church that the world would know that we are his disciples. And Colossians 3.14 says, and above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect keyword, perfect harmony. Mm. And this is what we're striving for. As the church universal, uh, Paul says, look, if you have all knowledge, all wisdom, if you have faith that can move mountains, but you do not have love, love, you have nothing and you are nothing. And this is what we need to fight for and make the priority in the midst of this denominational uh, culture that we do have. Um, And I want to just touch on that aspect. I've heard from many unbelievers, oh, well, if you are so divided, why are there so many denominations? Why are there so many this, this, and this in in the Christian uh, community? And I would, I, I typically will respond and say, well, when you look at what is being taught, obviously in, in an Orthodox setting, a Presbyterian, a Baptist, an Anglican, we are uniting on essential doctrines and, and what is important. Uh, St. Augustine, I know you love him, and as do I, yes. he says, uh, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. So how would you yes. respond to somebody who's asking that question? So many denominations, why? It seems like there's division, but in reality, there's a unity in the essentials. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I would first respond by saying something very similar to what you said and basically quote Augustine um, to just point out that on the essentials, we are one. On the essentials, we have unity. And that is a very important thing. But I also think that it's important too to not overlook the objection that is being brought to the table. Because I think a lot of times we can have the tendency to go, well, because we have these unity on core doctrines, it doesn't matter that there's division between denominations. That's totally okay. And that's expected. And that's the way things go. And some will even turn to like first Corinthians where Paul in chapter 11 speaks of the fact that he understands there needs to be divisions within the church. And they'll say, see, like, this is, this is why it is the way it is. But I want to say that there's a difference between having a oneness of doctrine uh, and being disagreeing on secondary points and having oneness on doctrine, but having tribes set up that disagree on different points. And I think one of the fears I have with the denominationalism that's very rampant, that I think people looking in have a valid point to point out and say, where's the unity with all this, is that a lot of times these become more than just we differ on secondary issues. These become tribes. We have tribalism that starts to take form where other Christians are looked on as lesser Christians or as not part of this in in the fullest sense of the word. Um, And so I think we need to take that very seriously and recognize that when responding to somebody who has that objection, it is very important to point out where there is unity. Absolutely. But it's also very important to say, listen, there is a problem with all these denominations. And that's something that we as the church are trying to work on, that we're striving towards unity with one another. And ultimately, I, I desire to see the day when denominations are a thing of the past and we are under with one another recognizing one another under the same universal term christian right 
And I, I just think that um, it's important to recognize that while denominational labels do not mean that we are divided, denominational labels should not be something that we grow comfortable with at the expense of Christian unity. That's really good. I was talking to some church leaders that I know in Baptist circles, and I was just asking them, you know, what, where is, or really just me personally noticing, even in like a Southern Baptist culture, where is the desire to have a potluck Sunday after church dinner with the local Presbyterians and the local Anglicans and just the churches uh, that are not in our denomination, but who are sharing in the same um, salvation that we have in Christ. And I think down to a practical level, um, like you said, we shouldn't grow comfortable to the point where it seems like, you know, we hold the Baptists up to a higher degree or the Anglicans or whatever. But instead, what happens when we actually unite in a practical sense, yes, there will be doctrinal secondary disagreements, but when the world looks at us, are they seeing people who love one another, who lay their lives down for each other, and who truly have something otherworldly about them? And I think that's what we ought to be shooting for, is a unity that pervades and goes beyond and transcends titles um, and at, once again, yes. I'm not, this is not me saying doctrine doesn't matter, but it is me saying right. there's things that there's something that Christ prayed for before his suffering. And, you know, before, as he was, as he was heading to the cross in the garden and it was that oneness. Um, and it's something that Satan is going to try and attack. Um, and mm. I'd like to mention this quote by Charles Spurgeon. He says, Satan always hates Christian fellowship. It is his policy to keep Christians apart. Anything which can divide saints from one another, he delights in. He attaches far more importance to godly intercourse than we do, since union is strength. He does his best to promote separation. And that phrase, union is strength. We see that even institutionally. We see that corporately as a body. But Satan is striving to divide us as a body. So what are ways in which we can confront the assaults of Satan to divide interdenominationally and just the body of Christ um, as a whole. How can we cultivate um, a heart for unity that is in Christ and it just goes above uh, titles? Yeah, I, I that's a really good question. I think that one of the first things that we can do is by recognizing that that's what Satan is seeking to do. Because I think a lot of times we don't even recognize that there's a spiritual battle going on within these denominational labels and these different things. You know, if I, if I am more proud of the title Anglican than Christian, then I'm falling prey to one of Satan's ploys. You know what I mean? And so I think that one of the first things we can do is just be be aware of the fact that this is a spiritual battle, that Satan is seeking to bring instability to the church and disunity in the body. And to really, I mean, Jesus said, let them be one so that the world may know that you father have sent me. So what is Satan going to do? He's going to disunify the church so that the world may not know that Jesus was sent by the father. You know, the opposite of Jesus being known is Jesus being unknown, which is his ultimate aim and goal. And so we as Christians need to be very aware that that is a very real 
element of of this battle that we're facing and because of that we should be engaging with one another in such a way that recognizes that our unity is fundamental in fighting the attacks of the enemy um, in all forms because we can look at at uh, temptation that comes in an individual's life so let's let's just talk about some individual who's struggling with pornography that may seem like a totally separate issue but now let's say that that individual is brought into unity with the church is brought into a gathering with like-minded believers has other men around him that are encouraging him that are offering accountability is going and attending and receiving the eucharist and receiving the the preaching of the word which is strengthening and encouraging well right there that spiritual battle that seemed disconnected is actually solved and fought through the unity of the body And so we can't separate these different ways that Satan attacks us from that fundamental issue, which is that when we gather as the church corporately, when we partake of the Eucharist and we partake of the hearing and preaching of the word, when we partake of fellowship with one another, when we are discipling one another and working together, this is this is warfare. We are conducting warfare. Just doing the things that the church does on a daily basis is conducting warfare against the enemy. And so really to quote Hebrews, Hebrews says, do not cease gathering as is the habit of some right there. That's the blueprints to how to fight the devil. Don't cease gathering. Don't stop fellowshipping. Don't stop partaking of of the Eucharist and of the word um, preached corporately on on Saturday, on Sundays. And so I I, I get very concerned. Um, Sorry if I'm going on here a bit too long, but I get concerned with um, the way media has kind of come and crept into the church to such a profound way that it actually gives people the opportunity to isolate from the body of Christ. Well, we've got live streams now. You can attend church virtually if you can't make it. And I've watched multiple churches, their attendance drop over the course of the pandemic with the rise of this live streaming of services. And what that tells me is that's, a, that's an area where the devil is taking something that could be good if somebody is sick or is unable to participate. Um, that could be a good thing, but he's using it and twisting it as a way to disunify and destabilize the church. And so we need to be aware of these things. And above all else, we need to recognize that meeting and gathering with one another cannot be replaced. That is how we conduct warfare. <laughs> Amen, brother. Uh, D.L. Moody, and I know you're familiar with him a little bit. (laughs) He says, I have never yet known, I have never yet known the spirit of God to work where the Lord's people were divided. And as you've just mentioned, that is exactly what is, is happening, even through the media and this idea of live streaming. It's true. People take advantage of that. And that word gathering in the Greek, episunagoge, it's yep. a physical, let's go to the synagogue in person. And you right. can't get around that. Uh, you know, right. of course, in the first century, they were, they were going to the, such places and they were not right. forsaking the gathering. You quoted yeah, I, I, also, I also just want to point out too that like historic Christianity and even historic Protestantism always taught that a corporate church gathering was made up of two things, word and sacrament. And sacrament can't be received through 
a video screen. <laughs> mm. And so I think that sometimes we, we underplay that and make it about just the preaching and because preaching can be heard through a video, well, that's sufficient. But historically, it's always been word and sacrament. And if somebody is too sick to come into church, well, then the ministers of the church bring the sacrament to the person. So there's still an element of gathering, even for the people that cannot come in person. And so I think that we, we should never downplay the significance of both word and sacrament being part of, of an ecclesiastical gathering. I love what you said, word and sacrament. And I'll be honest, I'll just be upfront. I think in Baptist circles, from what I've witnessed, sacramentology, the Lord's Supper, it's simply, it's not held to as high as a standard. And there, I think that affects, it's not held to a high regard, I should say, in comparison to the preaching of the word, which, amen, this, the preaching of the word is where the power of the gospel is and all of that. But there is something otherworldly. There is something that is taking place that is uniting us to Christ further and deeper. Um, when we take part of the Lord's Supper, that is beyond even a remembrance. And I think our holding the sacraments to a low regard, and I think specifically in Baptist circles that I've witnessed, affects our unity because we don't hold what the Lord holds high. And when we don't right. do that, that's when we're, we forsake those things. We don't see the importance and the vitality of the Christian religion, and we're not going to be zealous. We're not going to see the Christian church as a celebration every Sunday. John Stott says this. You made me think of this. The Christian community is a community of the cross, for it has been brought into being by the cross, and the focus of its worship is the Lamb once slain, now glorified. So the community of the cross is a community of celebration, a Eucharistic community, ceaselessly offering to God through Christ the sacrifice of our praise and thanksgiving. The Christian mm. life is an unending festival, and the festival we keep now that our Passover lamb has been sacrificed for us is a joyful celebration of his sacrifice together with a spiritual feasting upon it. It is a joyful celebration together. It's Eucharistic. This is a picture that we don't often, oftentimes, I'm guilty of this. I don't roll up to church and on the way driving to my local gathering, this is a celebration. But there's Amen. moments and there's days where the Lord is stirring in my heart. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. We are going to partake of the sacraments, hear the word preached, and we're going to gather with the saints. And let me Amen. tell you, in those moments is when I have seen brothers and sisters who are, let's say, living in sin, and the body comes around them, the conviction of sin uh, uh, prompts them and convicts them and moves them to a deep repentance and a deeper love for the Lord because the body is united with the same mind by the same spirit. And we are really enacting and upholding what Christ has inaugurated and what he intended for us as the church. Um, yes. And I think a lot of this as well as, as Lord willing future ministers of the gospel, um, something that we can cultivate as well. Ephesians 4 talks about the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, uh, these men of God who God has given to us to equip the saints for the ministry in our local churches uh, for building the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith mm. and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood. And I think a lot of that is, Father, we ought to be praying, oh, Lord, 
raise up ministers who will preach boldly, who will preach courageously, but also who will uphold the means of grace that God has given us and not only uphold them, but explain them well and fight for them well and display them well and use them well, apply them well, specifically the Lord's Supper, baptism, things of that nature, so that we can see the glory of Christ in those things. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with all of that. And I just, I think, again, recognizing and framing this, that these are the weapons of our warfare against the enemy. Like keeping that in mind is so important. And I mean, if you think about it, the devil's strategy is always to isolate somebody. That mm-hmm. is always his strategy. I mean, even on a very spiritual level, when we sin, the shame that comes with that sin is a feeling of isolation from God. And he, if, if the devil can keep us in that isolated state where we feel as though God wants nothing to do with us, then he has won. And ultimately, the way in which we are restored after sin is by coming to God in repentance and feeling the beautiful grace and mercy that his forgiveness offers us, union with him through sin. And so in the same way, how do we fight the devil when he tries to isolate us from union with one another in the church? We come together, we gather, we, we uphold the word, we uphold the sacraments, and we recognize that these are, these are not simply means of grace for us to be sanctified in the Christian life, but these are means of tearing down the kingdom of darkness. Amen, brother. The proverb, I uh, just looked up, Proverbs 18.1, it says that whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. And that is why what Satan wants. Mm. Satan works in isolation, but God works in insulation and community. And as we're speaking about Christian unity, I think we it's amazing. And I think we ought to uphold a picture of this worldwide unity. This is what Christ died for. He purchased every nation, tribe, and tongue so that they would be one. And we, there's a global vision that Christ has. Go disciple the Gentiles, the nations, the peoples of the earth. But I think it starts in the locality in which you're placed, the yes. local vicinity. Um, what are your thoughts on just pressing in to a local body and the importance of, if you're, you know, of being in a, an in-person gathering? Yeah. Oh, I I think it's absolutely essential. And I think you see this so clearly in scripture. Just read the names of the epistles, Paul to the Corinthians, Paul to the Romans. Well, these are all part of the church, but the church in Rome, the church in Corinth, these are local churches that he's writing to. And he's expecting these churches to be corporately gathering and reading these letters as one body. And so he's not expecting that there's a Christian in Corinth who's separated from the church, who's not going to be reading this letter as part of the church. There's an assumption all throughout scripture that if this letter is going to the church in Rome, that all people who are Christians in Rome will be gathering as the church in Rome corporately. And so I think that there's a biblical precedent for it. And I think that you can clearly see a benefit to all communities where there is a vibrant, healthy church that is seeking to gather constantly and is recognizing that they are all priests of God. I mean, we can't understate that. We are priests 
we are priests of God through union with Jesus Christ, who is the high priest. And I think one of the most beautiful things about the Protestant Reformation is the acknowledgement of the priesthood of all believers, the acknowledgement that we all, in, in many ways, all of us are clergy. All of us are ordained ministers of the gospel. Now, obviously, there are different roles that God has for specific purposes within the church. But don't think that just because you haven't gone to seminary and haven't been ordained underneath a minister, that you are not somehow a minister of the gospel. And I think that one of the problems that we see in evangelicalism is that there's kind of become this idea that people who attend church are spectators of something that's going on as opposed to participants in something that's going on. And I think that, that we need to recognize and strengthen one another in the reality that as priests of God, when we gather, we are participating in something that is greater than we are, something that has proportions that are greater than, than merely this, this little earthly local church gathering. We are participating in a cosmic reality that is going on across all the world. One of the practices that I that I adopted when I was very, very little, my mom and dad would always tell me when we'd go to church, they would say, right now across the world, there are Christians gathering. And ever since that point, when they told me that, I would intentionally sit and in the middle of worship, we're singing a hymn or something. I would close my eyes and I would listen to the voices within my local congregation and then I would try to amplify that out to picture all the churches in the world at that moment that we're all gathering, singing together as one chorus of voices. And it really draws this idea that the picture of the local church and the unity of the local church is ultimately a, a micro picture of the unity of the global church. And so to cease to be part of a local church and to have unity in a local church is ultimately to cease reflecting the unity that we are striving for within the global church. Amen, brother. And you make me think of Hebrews 12 as well. Mm. When yes. we gather, as the writer of Hebrews says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin, which clings so closely, and let us, notice it's plural, let us as a congregation, a local body, and as the church universal, run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus. We look to him. And it's like understanding as well, the, it should encourage us to know that there are saints who have gone before us who have fought the good fight, who have finished the race, who are, think of the, just a, a coliseum of people being filled and cheering with all of their heart. These saints who see us and these angels who look upon us in this world, just blown away at the wisdom of God in our salvation, but also in what God is doing through the church. So when we see the saints who have passed on and who are with the Lord, who have gone through what we have gone through, that should encourage us not only that they're watching us or that they know what's happening, but that they are partaking in Christ right now in the heavenly realm. They are worshiping the Lord as we are worshiping the Lord. There is a unity that is otherworldly taking place as we speak, especially yes. like you said, I think it's a good practice when you gather on a Sunday morning 
or a Sunday with your church to think about all the other churches that are doing the same and to think about all the saints. Oh my goodness, the multitudes of saints who have even shed their blood, who have gone before, who have walked faithfully before God, who are worshiping day in and day out if there's days and day outs of a heaven. Right, yeah. <laughs> but thinking about that, there is it's yeah. a beautiful reality. You are in that unity. And what did Jesus teach us to pray? Our Father who art, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There is a unity. And, all, and ultimately, yeah, go ahead, finish. Oh, yeah. I was just saying there's a unity in heaven in which Christ desires to bring to earth. And that is through a body of believers who loves one another. Right. And I was just going to say that the worship, the corporate worship of the church is ultimately the a moment that we experience now in which that reality is that union is brought. We, when we worship, we are being lifted into the heavenly places to, and we're joining this, this corporate body of not just believers on earth, but believers in heaven. We are all joining. I mean, I was fascinated to, to learn that the early liturgies that the church formulated were based off of the book of revelation and what they saw was taking place in the heavenly places in Revelation. And they're like, well, we're joining this when we gather, so we need to be worshiping like this. There's an understanding that this is not just we're going to go sing a couple songs, listen to a sermon, remember Jesus' sacrifice, and then go home. No, this is we are going to come together. We're going to enter heaven together. We're going to stand at the throne of grace together, and we're going to partake of that throne of grace together. And, and just recognizing, brothers and sisters, we are not simply gathering in a building on earth. That building is a place, a sacred space that is, to, that is conveying to us that we are stepping from the world into the heavenly holy of holies at the very throne of God. Amen. That'll change the way you worship when you picture that, when you recognize that. That'll just radically change the way you worship. Amen. And again, uh, notice too that in all the pictures of worship in the heavenly places, it's never not a corporate gathering. It's always a gathering. In fact, John sees standing before the throne an innumerable multitude. Not an individual in his house on the couch watching a live stream. A multitude of people that are all together standing before the throne singing praises. And so again, all throughout scripture, there's this reality that worship is always done corporately because the corporate worship that we do communicates that we are the body of Christ. Amen, bro. That is, that's beautiful. And it's a picture we ought to be beholding and aware of. And I think once again, the evil one attempts to bring us out and not to even be aware. Like you said, in the very beginning, he tries to not move us to where we don't even recognize um, such beauty, beautiful realities. Um, right. Yeah. Well, like so, you prayed when you, when you say, when we pray, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, when we gather on Sundays, we are enacting what that prayer is communicating. Hmm. We are enacting the prayer of thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven when we worship, when we hear the preaching of the word and partake of the sacraments. That's an enactment of those, those, those beautiful words that we pray. Amen. Matthew Henry, 
he has a quote where he's really talking about prayer, but I think it's a beautiful picture. You, you, you said the phrase, we are lifting up our souls, but he says that prayer is us lifting up our souls to God and bearing our hearts before him. And that is just a picture of uh, mm. what is taking place in the local gathering. Um, I want to hit on two more things. Um, one, as I just mentioned, just prayer. What is just how important is prayer uh, just in this process of unity? And then finally, um, we'll discuss just the eschatological hope and what this may seem to might look like uh, moving forward in the centuries ahead of us. Um, but first, just prayer and the necessity of prayer in cultivating unity. Yes. Yeah, I mean, prayer is prayer is such a neglected practice within the Christian church. There is so much power in prayer to be able to speak to the God of the universe is a gift that we should never take for granted, especially because the access that we have to God through prayer is only afforded through Jesus Christ, which is why when we pray, we say in Jesus name, because Jesus is the means by which our prayer is received by the father. He is our mediator that brings us. He's, he's reaching, holding God and holding us and bringing us together. And so it's just the, the, the theology of prayer is just such a remarkable thing, but in terms of unity, we should be praying. We should be praying without ceasing as Paul says, and I think one of the first ways that we should be praying is by praying for our own state of being, not praying, Lord, I pray that these churches will unify and that, it, no, Lord, what in me is hindering union? What in me it has pride? Pride is the killer of unity. And I can tell you that there are elements of pride in me that I am seeing every single day that I know is interfering with my ability to unify with others. So Lord, where is there pride in me? Where is there a desire to be right more than a desire to be united with your church? The prayer has to start here mm. because unless you're dealing with the internal pride and the internal desire for disunity that might be found in you, you're never going to be able to actually go out and strive for unity um, in a Christ-like way. It's always going to be unity with a catch, unity with with some sort of um, with some sort of desire internally to hold on to an element of your being right. right. You know, you know. I, I want unity as long as everybody becomes Anglicans. You know, right. like if if that's my desire and that's my definition of unity, then that's not true unity. That's not ultimately the unity that Christ prayed for. And so in order to strive for unity through prayer, I think the first step is by praying for your own self um, and looking internally. Mm, that's good. And Ephesians 4, you reminded me, says, I therefore, Paul says, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you all have been called with all keyword humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Yes. So many one another's in scripture, love one another, bear with one another, rejoice with one another, comfort one another. Um, and that there is a unity of the spirit 
because yes. of the bond of peace that Christ at the cross purchased for us. Ephesians 2 says, Jesus himself is our peace, and the Holy Spirit cultivates that. I'm yeah. reading just meditations on preaching uh, by Francis Grimke, um, but he mentions, yes, he's talking about preaching, but I think it can apply to any situation, just these this ultimate, like you said, dependence, which requires humility and an abandoning of oneself, uh, ultimate dependence on the Holy Spirit. There is no bond of humility. There's no unity without the Spirit. There's no bond of peace apart from the Holy Spirit. That which is of the flesh is flesh. If fleshly carnal mindedness is trying to unify, that is that is of the devil. And there's going to be no supernatural Holy Spirit led um, power. J.C. Ryle says unity without the gospel is a worthless unity. It is yeah. the very unity of hell. So we need humility. I remember when I started to talk to you early on about eschatology and I was studying the scripture because I, I was steeped in um, a hyper, uh, I was steeped in a heavy dispensationalism, a classical dispensationalism. And I just remember praying to the Lord and I continue to pray it to this day. Lord, if I am wrong anywhere, please correct me. If yeah. I am right anywhere, please strengthen my conviction, but keep me humble and willing to learn. Um, yes. I can hear my grandmother, Diane Lewis, telling me to be a fat Christian, a faithful, <laughs> available, but keyword teachable Christian. Yes. And I think she got that from Adrian Rogers, but still, like just, <laughs> yeah, just, I want to be a fat Christian. I want to be available. Lord, I'm here. Mm. I'm yours. You bought me. I have been bought with a price. I want to be faithful and I want to be teachable and teachableness. Um, yeah. It requires a humility, and I I love that. I love that because he opposes the proud, but he gives grace and generosity. He pours that out on us who are humble. And when the church realizes that, I think the world will notice that. Leonard Ravenhill says, "You have never." <laughs> I love this quote. He says, "You never have to advertise a fire. Everyone comes running when there's a fire." Likewise, if your church is on fire, he's saying this in the positive sense, you will not have to advertise it. The community will already know when you are on fire for the Lord Jesus and the spirit is working and there is love abounding unity. People are going to know because love is countercultural. Biblical right. love is against the grain. Yes. And that is what we ought to be fighting for. And that's the center of everything. You know, Paul, Paul talks about how, you know, all of these different things are going to pass, pass away, but love will remain. And we think, well, faith is so important. Faith is the heart of the gospel. It's like, yeah, faith is the heart of the gospel, but guess what? Paul says faith is going to pass away. There's not going to be a need for faith in heaven because the things that will be hoped for will be realized. So the only thing that will remain is love. And love is even at the heart of faith, right? What, what is the difference between a saving faith and a not saving faith? Love. <laughs> Do Amen. we love Christ? Amen. Do we love his church? Do we love people, right? These are greatest commandments summed up in love God, love neighbor, right? This, that's it. It's at the core, the center of everything is love. And I think that that is just a remarkable thing to remember. Um, like we need to recognize that humility, Christian humility only comes with love. We can't be humble if we don't have love. We can't find unity if we don't have love. 
we can't kill pride within us if we don't have love. Mm. And I love, I love the, the word teachable, like you said, like that's, that's an area I've been trying to cultivate in my own life, uh, especially in the past year is just being teachable, going and buying books from Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox and reading them with a heart that doesn't say, Oh, they're wrong, but going, what do they have to say that I can learn from? Like, here we are as a church. I look at, I'll, I'll just split it. It could be split further, but we'll just split it as Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and Protestants. Protestants should be learning from Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox to have a very high view of the sacraments. Protestants, I mean, Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox should be looking and learning from Protestants to have a very high view of the Word of God. <laughs> mm. Roman Catholics and Protestants should be learning from Eastern Orthodox to emphasize the experiential aspects of the faith. Amen. Protestants should be Protestants and Orthodox should be learning from Roman Catholicism to have a deep, rich, rigorous philosophical understanding of theology. Like we all need each other. Mm. We all need each other. This is the church. And yeah. there are elements that Protestantism lacks because it's not in communion with Rome in the East. And there are elements that Rome in the East lack because they're not in union with their Protestant brothers and sisters. And the barrier there is pride. The barrier there is a lack of teachability and a lack of humility to learn from one another and to reform where reform is needed to reform itself to being consistent with the word of God and upholding truth. And truth is only revealed and upheld through love, only upheld and revealed through love. And so when we set aside our pride and we humble ourselves with a heart that is filled with love for the truth, I, I believe that, that unity is inevitable. It's an inevitable outcome of a love for the truth. Amen, brother. I mean, just, I can't even fathom this, but when the, you know, I know in Protestant circles, it's, we immediately hear the word Catholic and it's like, oh, they're wrong. and even. No, they ain't saved. They're not saved because they're Catholic. And I don't think that that is the heart of Christ in the sense of we should be viewing them as our neighbor, as right. those with whom we can love, learn from, and seek after. Right. Um, seek the the unity of the bond of peace. And want, you know, you can't apply this this systematic uh, view or this total holistic view of what you think is the right way and apply it to every single person who says they're Catholic or they're Eastern Orthodox. <laughs> it's right. like, no, no, let's see them as brothers and sisters in Christ who now bear God's image. Um, right. it, those who profess the faith and, and seek unity to seek, let's first seek understanding um, uh, in those essentials as we've talked about so that we can walk forward um, in unity and love, like you've said. And I just want to say briefly, too, that seeking unity does not mean that we don't point out differences and we right. don't draw the line in the sand, right? right? Like there needs to be a recognition that unity is never at the expense of truth. Amen. So I, 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 don't, I don't also want people to, to think, well, I need to just unite with my Roman Catholic brothers and sisters in Eastern Orthodox, even in the areas that are 
right. totally outside the boundaries of, of what is biblical Christianity. Like, no, we need to stand firm. And sometimes the disunity will be present because those things are not resolved yet. And we need to recognize that that's ultimately not a bad thing if the truth is being upheld, right? Like, as Paul says, I recognize that there must be some divisions among you. We need to recognize that disunity in pursuit of the truth is ultimately not a lack of unity. Right. We need to not conflate those things either. Amen. So I think that's important. Absolutely. And I think that's, as I mentioned before, like seeking and understanding where are these people coming from? What do they hold to? And when there are doctrinal uh, differences that are pretty, that we, we have to disagree with uh, strongly, but we, we stand firm on the truth. But like you said earlier, with a heart of humility and love, Right. Um, and, and standing, and we need. yeah, and standing firm on the truth, even if there will be a division as a result, is right. ultimately in the pursuit of unity, not mm-hmm. actually in the pursuit of disunity. Amen. So sometimes disunity and schism takes place when people are pursuing the fullness of unity around the truth. Right. So. Right. Well, Jonah, kind of thought I was going to hope me. I knew you. We're going to go in this direction uh, just for the last point in the terms of uh, eschatology and just kind of a, I guess, something to think about and to hope for and to pray for. But as with a with a hopeful eschatology, post-millennialism, um, just viewing the future as Christ's reign increasing and his enemies being subdued by the gospel, uh, the gospel of peace, what do you think unity will look like? obviously from a local, but also in a global sense. And what has it looked like since those, you know, those disciples in Galilee met Christ until now? Yeah. Well, I think since, since the disciples were commissioned, we've seen the church explode all over the globe. Like, I think that that should just be encouraging to all Christians is to recognize you have a very small group, and now you have churches all across the entire world in almost every nation of the world. Um, that is a really, really powerful reminder that Christ is accomplishing something. This is going somewhere. This is, there is victory that is taking place despite what we see outside our windows. Um, and as for the future, I mean, my, my vision of unity really does center around um, the sacraments. I really think that that the ultimate the ultimate visible sign of unity is when all Christians are partaking of the Eucharist with one another. Where a Baptist can go into a Roman Catholic church and a Catholic can go into an Anglican church and a Lutheran can go into a Presbyterian church. And we can all share in the Eucharist together. I think that that has always been kind of the sign of Christian unity throughout history. You know, the Christians are the ones that gather to partake of the Eucharist. And so being able to do that with one another, um, you know, there's no, there's no law against a Baptist going to a Roman Catholic church now, but a Baptist cannot partake of a Roman Catholic Eucharist. So that right there shows that the line is drawn in the sand there. And so I think that unity in the future looks like partaking of that, of, of the, the Lord's Supper together. Um, and I also just think on, on, a, on a more local church level, the unity, the visible unity of the church in the future is going to manifest itself in the communities and their perception of the church. I think that a lot of churches, due to disjunction that is found within them, 
communities don't look well upon churches all the time because they think to themselves, the church is supposed to be serving, supposed to be caring for the needy, supposed to be doing all these, these works of charity. And the church is gathering and isolating itself from community, from the rest of the community, the outside community. And just as we see the importance of corporate gathering, we shouldn't be isolating ourselves from the body of Christ. The body of Christ should not be isolating itself from the world that needs the message and the living water of Jesus Christ. Mm. And so I think that unity in the church is going to manifest when, when a church is, is really uh, taking discipleship seriously and corporate gathering is taking place, people are being discipled, the body is being strengthened, that is going to manifest itself in the church pouring itself out into the community and flooding the community with living water. And Jesus said the nations are going to be discipled. I trust he has all authority in heaven and on earth, and it's on that authority I trust that the nations will be discipled. So we can have full confidence right now that the church will one day be fully unified and again, I, when I say fully unified, I never want to take away from the fact that things will never be perfect prior to the second coming of Christ. Christ's coming, the eschaton, that is when the restoration of all things takes place. Right. But I do believe that if we see the trajectory of Adam's sin and Christ coming in the middle of history, it would, the, the type is never greater than the antitype. So we cannot say that this is just going to get worse and worse. It just does not make sense with typology in scripture. If Jesus is the new Adam, we're going upwards, further up and further in, as Lewis says. Um, Amen. And, and the church, we should have great confidence. And that confidence should embolden us to, to just keep, keep working, keep striving, you know, keep being faithful Christians, Amen. Um, recognizing that despite what goes on around us, despite the collapse of Western civilization uh, to paganism and secularism, the church will still stand. It'll come out the other side as it has throughout all of history. And Lord, keep us faithful. Amen, brother. And in Revelation, we see the people of God, the bride of Christ, believers depicted as a city. The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. Jesus says in Matthew's gospel to shine your light before men. Then he says that a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Mm. City implies community. It implies unity. It implies uh, discourse and love, a, a corporate gathering that the world can behold. And that is what the vision of the people of God, uh, right. a vision that we should share. And so brother, and this has been so encouraging to me and I pray to those who have heard, um, I'm going to read Psalm 133 to close us. And if Jonah, you could pray us out, that would be awesome. Psalm 133. It says, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. And as we close, unity, the unity of God's people, that is where God's favor will be found, and that is where life is forevermore. All right, Jonah, if you could close us in prayer. Father God, Lord, 
we just come before your throne of grace. We praise you for Jesus Christ, Lord, um, who has reconciled us to you. And Lord, through union with Jesus Christ, being united to him, we are, we are partakers of the divine nature. We are members of your family. We are, we are truly the body of Christ. And Lord, we are human, but we are also seated in the heavenly places. And so in many ways, the church is a manifestation of Christ's divine and human nature, Lord. And so let us take seriously the call to unity. Let us take seriously the call to be the body of Christ on this earth, to love you, to love our neighbors. Lord, um, Christ prayed for the oneness of his church. And he prayed for a oneness that is manifested in being the same oneness that is found in the Godhead. And that through it, the world will know that he is the Messiah. And so God, our testimony our greatest testimony to the truth and the validity of the Christian faith is through our unity. Let us prioritize that. Let us kill pride and sin that so easily ensnares us and clings to us that interferes with that task. And Lord, let us all be faithful. Let us be faithful to the global church, but let us also be faithful to our local church. Let us gather, not cease from gathering, Lord. Let us partake of the Eucharist, let us partake of the hearing and the preaching of the word, and let us go and bring the streams of living water into the communities where you have planted us, Lord. Let us be faithful servants and ministers of the gospel to those around us, Lord. And God, help us in our striving for these things to always recognize Anglicans, Presbyterians, Baptists, Catholics, Orthodox, Lutherans, the list goes on, Lord. Let us all see these people as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And let us strive to unite with one another, to have conversations, God, that involve the differences. Let, let's not just set them aside. Let's discuss them. Let's come to a deeper understanding of one another that we might hold and have the unity that Christ prayed for. Lord, we know that you will accomplish your purposes that your work in this world will be done. Your will will be done. This world will be transformed. The kingdom of heaven will come down. And so, God, we thank you and we praise you that this is not ultimately dependent upon us. It's dependent on you and your spirit working in the world. And we trust that the spirit will accomplish his work through the church. And so, Lord, we just ask that you humble us, that we might be receptive to the work that the Spirit is doing and be faithful with the task that you have given us in the life that you have given us. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen.